0: It's Tuesday, July 19th, 2022. I'm Jackson Bird. Today, three species frozen in time within one single piece of amber. Plus, the DIYers building their own coffins. And Costco has promised not to raise the price of their rotisserie chickens. But is that a good thing? Here's some cool stuff for your ride home. The dude who inspired the whole extracting insect DNA from amber plot of Jurassic Park has just made another remarkable discovery. George Poinar Jr., an entomologist whose early work did indeed involve extracting DNA from insects entombed in amber, although without the whole dinosaur resurrection thing, recently found another insect in an amber sample, but not just an insect, an insect, a plant, and a developing fly. Larva. It's a whole microcosm preserved inside one single sample of amber. Now The insect happens to be of a new species of wasp that Poinar himself discovered a few years ago, called a Hambletonia dominicana. And the flower is an even more recent discovery, in fact, this study marks the first fossil record of the plant's entire genus, dubbed Plucanesia. And this particular species of flower was named Pluconesia minima by Poinar. Now, as for the amber that trapped these three life forms together millions of years ago, quoting Science Alert, the famed Dominican amber is a fossilized form of resin from the extinct Hymenia protera tree, which scientists think once grew in a moist tropical forest ecosystem based on the variety of life forms its resin entombed. There's a debate over the age of Dominican amber fossils, with conflicting theories based on the microorganisms used for dating specimens. Some say that the presence of foraminifera, single-celled protists, sometimes referred to as armored amoebae, indicate the amber was formed roughly 20 to 15 million years ago. Others suggest a date of 45 to 30 million years ago based on the presence of coccoliths, plates of calcium carbonate formed by single-celled phytoplankton called coccolithophores. End quote. Now, taking into account a number of different factors, Poinar believes this particular specimen is 30 million years old. And the flower in this specimen of amber, which is quite small but has a long stem, had already bloomed and bears four maturing seed pods, one of which contains a developing fly larva. Poinard said in a statement, quote, In many cases, unrelated organisms become entombed together in amber just by chance. But I feel that in this case, the wasp was attracted to the flower, either for obtaining nectar or in attempts to deposit an egg on the capsule that contains the fly larva." End quote. And actually getting to see the interaction of fossils with one another across species is a pretty unique opportunity. And Poinar seemed to be particularly inspired by the whole affair, saying that an organism can sometimes be regarded as art and assigned to a particular art period. He said, quote, Both of the fossils can be associated with two 20th century art movements that appeared in fine art, design, and architecture. The petite flower represents the art nouveau style that emphasizes elegant curves and long lines. The dancing wasp represents the art deco style that stresses sharp angles and decorative shapes, end quote. Dude is on a whole other level, but I'm here for it. Have you ever thought about what your casket would look like after you die? If you plan to have one, that is. It's not something many people give much thought to unless they are aware that they're approaching the end. But a certain subset of people not only plan out what they'd like their caskets to look like, they actually build them themselves. The Wall Street Journal recently profiled a number of these folks, and I first saw it from journalist Taylor Lawrence, who tweeted the article out with the comment, quote, when people ask how life in America is going, end quote, which is pretty funny. And since some folks do consider building their own coffins in part because the price of coffins and caskets and burial services are so steep in the US, yes, this practice could definitely be interpreted as a well, final nail in the coffin for late-stage capitalism. But ultimately, I think the idea of building your own coffin indicates a pretty healthy relationship with death. Among the DIY coffin makers profiled in the article are a woman who moonlights as a death doula and a professor who taught a course on death and dying at Smith College. Quoting the Wall Street Journal, various merchants offer coffin parts or ready to assemble kits to make the task easier. Northwood's Casket Company of Beaver Dam, Wisconsin sells a build your own casket kit starting at $699. Jonas Aizan, owner of Northwood's Casket, says the company sells about five kits in a typical month. the company's website says assembly takes one to two hours and it features a blog post, so you wanna build a casket. Buyers can add their own flourishes and creative designs. I've seen a lot of camouflage, Mr. Zahn says, end quote. And at least in Maine and western Massachusetts, you can attend a coffin building workshop and leave with your own final resting box in just a few hours. There you can choose from a typical looking coffin with the tapered toe end and wider head and shoulder end, or a design that can double as a bookshelf until you're ready for it. One attendee, Joan Pillsbury, said that she had a blast at the workshop. Her quote, we just had so much fun, we were laughing, has been splashed all over teasers for. article. She also shared that part of what she likes about her bookshelf style coffin is that it will be one less thing for her kids to worry about when she goes. And that was a common sentiment among DIY coffin makers. The Smith College professor said that he has very specific instructions for his family after he passes. He's to be taken from his bed to the already made box and then buried at an existing site on the family pasture such homespun burial preferences also seem common with this crowd chuck lakin who hosts the coffin building workshops also educates on home funerals green cemeteries and other alternative rites and burial practices so it may not be for everyone but like so much else with the macabre it's actually a much more uplifting and healthy thing than it may seem at first glance A little bit ago, I explained Arizona Iced Tea's reaffirmed commitment to keep their huge cans of tea just 99 cents, despite rising inflation. Today, let's talk about another company with a commitment to keeping a certain product affordable, Costco's $4.99 Rotisserie Chicken. While Arizona is keeping its canned tea 99 cents due to an unwavering commitment to their loyal consumers, a pretty huge credit to the family run company who basically said, We've got billions, we're fine. Costco and other stores, meanwhile, who are keeping their rotisserie chickens at pre-inflation prices are doing it because they consider the chickens to be loss leaders. Basically, the point of the chicken isn't to bring in profits directly, but rather to draw in customers who will inevitably end up buying other items while they're in the store, other items whose prices have risen or whose contents have decreased due to shrinkflation. But Costco's situation is particularly unique among other stores. Over the last few years, they've successfully built up a vertical integration scheme for their chicken. The warehouse store has its own feed mill, hatchery and slaughter plant in Nebraska, as well as contracts with local farmers. And Vox says the strategy could save Costco as much as 35 cents per chicken. Major companies like Tyson Foods similarly sought to control every step of the raising, slaughtering, and manufacturing process years ago, but only Costco additionally plays the role of retailer. Quoting Vox, the move worries industrialized animal farming critics, who say that over the last few decades, meat industry consolidation has worsened conditions for meat processing workers, intensified largely unchecked air and water pollution, and weakened rural economies. To Costco's credit, the company has made some improvements when compared to most conventional chicken companies. That's not saying much, but it's something. The company uses a more humane slaughter method than the industry standard in its Nebraska plant, its contracts with independent farmers are more fair than average, and at $4.99 per bird, no one could accuse the company of price-fixing. But Costco still relies on nearly all of the same practices as the rest of Big Chicken, making it an important case study in the hard limits of trying to produce more equitable meat in America's consolidated, extractive food system, one where consumer price apparently still matters far more than farmer, worker, or animal welfare. End quote. Now, in all counts, it seems like Costco's practices when it comes to chickens and the industry is better than most but still not good, which is reflective of a supremely messed up industry. The Nebraska Farmers Union says that while Costco's contracts with chicken farmers are better than average, they're still not good. Costco can say that it brought 1,100 jobs to Nebraska, but Vox notes that slaughter plant jobs are among the most dangerous in the U.S. and that some places with majority contract-based in industrialized farming tend to experience higher rates of economic and population decline. But again, none of this is reflective of Costco specifically, just more of the appalling state of the chicken industry in the U.S. overall. If anything, Costco tends to be more responsive when critiques are raised. Like in 2020, when an animal rights investigator released a hidden camera video inside a Costco chicken farm, the company responded, saying that they would work on creating more humane conditions for the chickens. Although, notably, the company has yet to sign the Better Chicken Commitment, a pledge signed by over 200 companies, including the likes of Chipotle, Burger King, and Subway, to source higher welfare chicken by 2024. And Vox points out that were they to sign on to that pledge, it would probably make their 4.99 dollars commitment for their rotisserie chicken much more difficult to maintain. And despite growing consumer awareness of animal welfare in the food industry, the top concern on most consumers' minds right now is inflation. So if Costco had to pick one or the other right now, I am betting they'd go with inflation, keeping their prices low where they can. And the rotisserie chicken is not the only low price Costco is staying committed to. NPR reported on a Costco earnings call last month in which executive Bob Nelson reassured everyone, quote, the price when we introduced the hot dog soda combo in the mid-80s was $1.50. The price today is $1.50, and we have no plans to increase the price at this time, end quote. End quote. Part of such promises from an optimistic perspective are like those made by the founders of Arizona Ice tea, who rose from a working class background and just want to see hardworking people able to afford their products. But on the slightly more manipulative side of things, Ernest Baskin, an associate professor of food marketing, told NPR, It's also a way of making people feel like they're saving money when they may not exactly be doing so. You know, even if a consumer has to buy a whole bunch of products whose prices have gone up, they'll feel better that they've saved money on something like the rotisserie chicken or that hot dog soda combo. Well, now a roundup of childhood TV shows getting interesting reboots in order of least WTF to most. So First Deadline has announced today that both Foster's Home for Imaginary Friends and Powerpuff Girls will be getting animated reboots developed by original creator Craig McCracken. Not too much else is known here just yet, except that they're both being produced by Hanna-Barbera Studios Europe, whose other current work is mostly streaming on HBO Max. So that may be where you find these going forward. And this Powerpuff Girls reboot is separate from the live action reboot that is still in development over at the CW. That one has faced a few delays and complications after reworking the pilot, but they say it's still coming eventually. In feature film news, we continue to get more content about the upcoming Greta Gerwig Barbie movie. Ryan Gosling has particularly confused people after taking time in an interview about his latest movie, Netflix's The Gray Man, to discuss his upcoming role as Ken, saying, quote, "...you have a Ken in your life, and, you know, that Ken has Kennergy." End quote. Kennergy. Yes, of course, we know exactly what you mean, Ryan Gosling. Everything that comes out about this Barbie movie is somehow simultaneously completely expected and completely confounding. Meanwhile, Daniel Kaluuya has confirmed that he is still working on a full-length live-action Barney movie. The things Kalia has shared in interviews about it only raises more questions. He keeps describing it as heartbreaking, and how the I Love You song that the Purple Dinosaur ended every episode with has always struck him because, quote, What happens when that isn't true? End quote. For a kid's show with so many dark takes over the years, that is certainly up there. And like Gerwig's Barbie, Kaluuya's Barney will be co-produced by Mattel Films. And when I went to look into this more, I discovered that Mattel's film production arm has a huge list of films listed in a TBA category, including Barney and Barbie, as well as Hot Wheels, American Girl, Magic 8-Ball, Polly Pocket, Thomas and Friends, Rock'em Sock'em Robots, Uno, and Viewmaster all of which are listed as live action. Will some of them be geared at kids, or will they all be these uncanny valley Barbies and heartbreaking Barneys? I guess we will find out. Greta Gerwig's Barbie is set to be released a year from this week, so the countdown begins. But that's going to be it from me for today. This show was produced by Ride Home Media. I'm Jackson Bird, and I will talk to you again tomorrow.